0: So just like last year, um, we're coming to you right after Apple's WWDC, and uh, although we want to keep things focused on how it impacts photography and things like that, there were a ton of updates, a ton of new hardware announcements, and a bunch of very interesting software enhancements. So today we're going to kind of breeze through them a little bit. We'll, we'll gloss over the stuff that's not as relevant to photography or not as interesting to us. And we'll dig in a little bit to the stuff that is.
1: Or, or we'll try. Because to be fair, we don't have the best track record when, it's, when it comes to sticking to the topic at hand.
0: But we'll do our best. I'm like trying to be optimistic right off the top and say that we will be you know, yeah, brief yeah. and concise. <laughs> and so, <laughs> we'll see how that works out.
1: But let's start um, with something that's properly photography related. Shall we? Oh, okay. so I think you have some stories to tell us.
0: I have some stories to tell.
1: You've been having some fun with a very different tool than what you're used to.
0: Yes. Um, I, I have had a very interesting weekend. So I, kind of, to back up and and give some context here, Um, the previous week we had a shoot and it was a video shoot and the client was really keen to get a very shallow depth of field look. And that's something that, of course, our normal uh, GH4 setup struggles with because the glass that we have is just, you know, it doesn't really allow for that. So we said, okay, this is an opportunity to rent a full frame camera and shoot videos. So of course, because we shot with a Canon 5D Mark III for many, many years as our ACAM, we're familiar with the ergonomics and the, you know, the general setup of things. So we figured the most natural thing to rent is a 5D Mark IV. Of course. We rented one, we rented it with the 70 to 200, the glorious f2.8 zoom, and with a um, Sigma 35. And, you know, we went and we shot that video. And of course, the footage was um, excellent. It was massive. Um, you know, we won't get into that story, but it's, you know, very large footage. Um, but, unfortunately, because of the way that the rental schedules worked out, I actually had to return the lenses immediately after a shoot and the camera the next day. So I was sitting here for, like, half a day with a 5D Mark IV on my desk and nothing to shoot it with. <laughs> So the weekend after, this past weekend, um, I had a photo shoot planned with friend of the show, Thomas Wong, who uh, we're actually going to be hearing from a little later. Oh, yeah. Um, and I decided okay, why not rent the camera again, but this time, strictly for photography, just for me, I didn't have any video stuff going on, um, so I, uh, I called a new rental place, and I tried to get the camera, and they had the body, but they only had two very peculiar lenses that, you know, I, my initial thought was I'll get a 35, I'll get a 50, you know, something, something in the standard range, um, preferably one of Canon's pieces of L glass or um, one of the Sigma art lenses. Right. Um, Unfortunately, because this was kind of a last minute decision, it was like Friday afternoon when I was thinking this. they didn't have any of that. They had no 35s. They had no 50s. They had no 85s. Um, right, they were all gone, weren't they? they everything was gone. All their <laughs> zooms were gone. Like, it was just, they're like, you can have the body, but there's not much lens-wise. Um, I mean, it makes anyways, sense because so, those are really, really nice lenses. Oh, of course, of course. And and I did, like, to be fair, you know, I'm sure their supply is normally fine, but because it was so last minute on my part, um, right. they did their best. So anyhow, I walked out with a Sigma 24mm um, art lens, the one4 um, and the Canon eighty-five mil one point eight, which is the sort of um, cheapo, older version. Yeah, it's
1: um, like the budget portrait lens. Exactly. It's the yeah,
0: it's the budget. But so, it is
1: pretty good, isn't it?
0: Well, it's an interesting lens. So I, I had those two. I was kind of on the far wide and tele end of things. Nothing in the middle. Um, and that was my loadout for the for the weekend. So Thomas and I go on this photo walk, and rather than taking my Fujifilm kit as I would have done normally. I just took the Canon, um, right? And I wrote up my experiences. Um, we'll we'll have a link in the show notes um, to the blog post where I kind of talk about it in general and share some photos. But overall, it was very interesting to go back to a DSLR. I mean, I I shot the 5D Mark II before switching to Fuji, and we had the 5D Mark III for video for a long time. Um, so it was kind of familiar and also not <laughs> right. Way, it was it was interesting. <laughs> how did you find the muscle memory? Like, did it take some time to adjust or was it like an instant recall? It was instant recall. And it was also, um, <laughs> there were some things that I actually forgot how to do, but my <laughs> my body just did them naturally. Like for instance, I was shooting. Um, and one of the things that impressed me most is just how accurate the metering is. Yeah. But there was one situation where I intentionally wanted to bias the exposure in um, one direction or other um, for effect. So I had totally forgotten how to do that. I forgot how I had set it up before. I just didn't, you know, it was not in my head. But through muscle memory, you know, I half pressed the shutter to get the metering. And then I was twirling the back wheel for exposure compensation. And, you know, lo and behold, that's exactly what it was doing by default. You know, that's just the way it was set up. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess I remember how to use this. (laughs) I guess the camera is set up the way that you... Um, or at least I intuitively expect it to work, um, which was great. And there were several instances throughout the weekend where I, I kind of ran into that, where things were um, operating as I wanted them to without me necessarily setting them to do that. It's just, you know, I think the partly because I, I, I guess, grew up with shooting Canon cameras, but also just the way that their defaults are chosen, I think, is, right. is in most cases in line with my expectations.
1: Yeah, and we like to make fun of DSLRs as, you know, the dinosaurs of photography. And we like to claim that mirrorless is the future, and it probably is, but we have to keep in mind that DSLRs are incredibly polished tools and they are very, very well designed. And like you said, they are very intuitive to to use. And I've been using uh, Canon EOS 3, an old film DSLR, uh, not DSLR, but SLR actually. <laughs> and... It uh, the controls are incredibly similar to what you can find today in a five D Mark IV, so it's it's yeah. just when you have a good design, it you don't have to change it dramatically because it just works. And and no, yeah, I totally get I totally get what you're talking about, and and I feel much the same way. It's there's every time I pick up the film camera, it's like it's different from my current uh, Sony A seven ii but it's at the same time it it's just easy to use. It's just intuitive, you know?
0: Of course. And it's hard to argue with decades of refinement, right? Sure. I mean, that's that's ultimately what it comes down to. Like, yes, of course, technologically um, mirrorless is is the future, but that's that's not taking into account what it means to have established, you know, 40, 50 years worth of an ecosystem and worth of a control scheme and, and a right. system the way that Canon and Nikon have done. And that's why um, you know, I, I fully admit that part of the reason I feel an affinity towards it and the, the reason it was so intuitive to me is, again, because I've I've used these cameras before. So because things don't change drastically from one generation to the next in terms of control scheme, of course it's going to be easy for me to pick it back up, right? right. But I have the impression that even a newcomer um, would find that the way the cameras are set up is um, not confusing, right? I mean, there's, there's obviously – with any camera, it doesn't really matter what it is um, – there are things you have to learn. Even Fujifilm cameras with their uh, you know exposure triangle as physical dials, Right. even there, there are things that you need to learn, <clears> certain quirks, certain things. So it's, uh, you know, there's always a learning curve, but in this case, yeah, that was just not an issue at all. I, I picked it right back up. It was really very satisfying to shoot yeah. with.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and I didn't grow up with, uh, uh using Canon cameras or any cameras for that matter. I picked them up uh, you know, as an adult and and I actually used Olympus cameras and Canon cameras interchangeably as I was learning photography. So yeah. I developed sort of like the muscle memory I developed it in parallel between the two systems or the two technologies, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I also find DSLRs and particularly Canon's DSLRs to be incredibly ergonomic and, and incredib- incredibly pleasing to use. So, yeah, like I said, we we here like to make fun of them because they are not the <laughs> you know the most advanced or the most forward thinking of uh, of companies. But uh, they, they still uh, their products are incredibly compelling, and then that's something we should keep in mind. Absolutely
0: yeah and I, I also want to point out that uh, the just speaking of ergonomics, the size of the thing um was was kind of an interesting situation because I'm very used to the size of mirrorless cameras now, and of course right. uh, any DSLr is going to be significantly larger like it is a bulky machine by comparison, it is. but yeah. it's interesting how having a grip that is um larger makes that weight go away a little bit like it, it sort of balances it out in a way yeah it's much more balanced
1: it, it really is especially if you put a large lens on, on on it it's just a better the overall package is much better balanced and that's been the the, the problem with some of the mirrorless systems particularly sony's because you have a camera that's still fairly compact and small but you put super large lenses on it and the whole thing just ends up being very front heavy. And in some cases, it's even a bit uncomfortable to use. But that's something that we're, we're in the case of DSLR size actually helps and being bigger is actually better.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's you know, it depends again on the lens combo as well. But that's just something that I find, especially because my hands are, are relatively large, like a lot of the mirrorless camera grips are just not they don't give me enough purchase. So even with standard size lenses, I feel like I'm having to do this uncomfortable claw-like grip using the force, like the finger strength to mm-hmm. hold it rather than just, you know, a standard grip. Um, so anyway, that was that was something. But overall, the weight was actually noticeably lighter than I was anticipating because um, I carried it on a Black Rapid strap with, uh, you know, one or the other prime all day. And I I really didn't feel burdened by it. Like it did not bother me... Um, in terms of weight. I was a little annoyed by right. having a bag as well. I kind of wish that I just, uh, I had some sort of pouch or something because it was only effectively one other prime that I was carrying. I didn't really need a bag, but anyway. And I'm,
1: I'm, I'm actually curious to see what, to learn what you thought overall of the camera, because Canon cameras have a reputation for being sort of oldish in terms of uh, performance and technology, like their dynamic range is not Usually, great compared to what other manufacturers are doing, and they've not been very, uh, very eager to adopt technologies that right now are considered, you know, standard across manufacturers like Wi-Fi, like uh, touchscreens, like GPS. However, the five D Mark IV has all of those things, and still, if you were to read reviews or and and try to get a sense of the overall opinion and the overall reception that the camera has faced in the market, you'd come away thinking it's been a bit of a disappointment, which is very weird to me. So I'm curious to see what you thought of it after playing with it for a while.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is kind of strange to think that now all of a sudden this Canon camera seems to have all the bells and whistles that we typically don't expect from them um i i think that it they're very patient with this stuff right and i think we've spoken before on an episode um you know why it took them so long to put touchscreens on their cameras and it's because they were waiting for you know the way to do a proper implementation that was quick enough and that didn't compromise the durability that something like a 5d is known for right um and you know whether or not that actually takes as long as it took them that's up for debate but i can tell you that the result is very good um the touch, sc- the screen just overall is very nice. It's, it's. Um, I would say noticeably brighter, and the colors are more vibrant. Uh, it, it. I don't know if the gamut has changed or something, but it, they feel more accurate as representations of the final photo, which is great. Um, and I feel like I can judge critical sharpness better than right. I used to be able to. Um, but what most impressed me was actually the fact that because of this dual pixel autofocus system that I think they first introduced in the 7D Mark II a handful of years ago, but that technology is now in the 5D Mark IV, and it means that live view is now usable. Like live right. view used to be this <laughs> this thing that just sort of you know it was in there, but I you know it was it was basically useless. Um, whereas nowadays um, I, for photography, I should say. Uh, but now with this technology, this dual pixel stuff, it's basically like flipping the 5D Mark IV into mirrorless camera mode. Right. You know, it's kind of like having both of them in one machine. Um, because first of all, focus tracking and accuracy is outstanding. And I, you know, I noticed that with lenses that, you know, you would say are probably not the best uh, representation of what the system can do. I mean, the right. Sigma is a third-party lens, so there's always questions there. And the 85 is is old enough, and yeah, like that's that's not the the fastest uh, of their lenses. But even still, it was clear to me that this system uh, of dual pixel autofocus was very confident. Like you know, I I never felt that it was um, hunting or hesitating, um, which is interesting because you know, even even the best mirrorless cameras that I know of, you start to push the autofocus system, and even if it eventually gets where you want it to go. The yeah, hunting a and the process—it's or... not, you know, it just doesn't quite feel like it knows what it's up to. This is like almost freakishly accurate. Um, <laughs> like it <laughs> seems to know what you're after, and it's just like, oh, you're looking for that particular bird. I'm going to ignore all of the other stuff, and I'll just lock onto that. And it's it's nice. I mean, that's that, I think that's why. Yeah, but I think that so... probably
1: has more to do with the onboard computer that the camera has built in, like the intelligent algorithm that figures out. What's in your scene and where to where to choose the focus point then with the actual focus capabilities of the sensor you know yeah and and in that sense, that's where you can absolutely notice the twenty thirty years of advantage that Canon has over pretty much every other manufacturer because they've been yeah. doing this for a really long time, and they've yeah. had plenty of time to figure out how focus works what you have to pay attention to and what you can ignore in a given situation. And their cameras just, they just work. They just invariably get it right. They pick up the right subject most of the time and and you don't even have to think about it, which is why many pros love them and swear by them. And if you couple that with the uh, focus tracking and the capabilities that mirrorless technology makes possible, like the face detection on the sensor itself, that's when you can actually have a live view mode that, that works. And that's what we're seeing with this 5D Mark IV. And I'm very excited to see that it that it actually delivers on the promise that we've been expecting for a while from them.
0: Oh yeah, 100% delivers. And it's it's funny that you use the, you know, it just works verbiage because Canon is a lot like the Apple of the camera industry, not only because of that mentality of of, you know, leveraging their experience to make things just sort of operate the way you expect, but also because unlike most manufacturers, they make their own sensor. Right. And that means that they're controlling essentially the entire experience from hardware to software, which is what allows for this level of, of refinement and optimization. Um, but the downside of that is, of course, that like you uh, alluded to earlier, the dynamic range and the, I guess you'd call it the raw technical performance and output right. of their sensors has generally not been up to par with the competition, whether that's Nikon or uh, more recently, um, mirrorless bodies like the sony's especially but even fujifilm um and in that sense i think that while there's been an improvement and a significant one um in the 5d mark 4 there's still like the sensor is still not um comparable i would say with the very best of the competitors and and it's mostly in things like dynamic range where that shows right. up um and in my case I, I i'm not really bothered by it because realistically um that's good much, enough, right? Yeah, well, yeah, like that much recovery range is really cool to have, but there's almost never a situation in the real world where I'm shooting and I need to pull that many stops, right, of, of right. highlight detail back or shadow detail back. Like it's uh, it's good to be able to do it. It's good to be able to do like HDR style photography without stacking exposures, but it's really like uh, you shouldn't need that kind of dynamic range always, right? I mean, that's that's like... Right emergency level stuff
1: and Um, as good as the sensor may be you're still going to get better results if you do stack the, the several images properly exposed for each of the
0: areas of the frame and then do the conversion in post right and and that's why like for me it's it's one of those things that i acknowledge like yeah this this sensor is not it's not competitive with with sony's latest but it's also kind of at the point where that doesn't matter so much anymore, I think right. it was good of them to push the resolution a little bit. 30 is a is a very comfortable resolution. It gives you enough room to crop a little bit, um, just for basic framing purposes, and still retain plenty of detail in there for uh, for printing at large sizes. Um, and again, while the two lenses that I had were maybe not the best, um, to, in order to let me judge the full. Detail potential and sharpness right. potential, um, especially because I wasn't able to adjust them in the short time that I had. Um, right. It's still pretty clear to me that the that sharpness or detail would not be a concern with good glass. Like there's there's a lot of really really good fine detail being picked up by this sensor,
1: and you have plenty of great glass to to choose from. <laughs> so yeah, no shortage of glass. Not, yeah, I mean, that's again, not that's a problem, the, <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's get to the bottom of this because I know you've been having second thoughts about choosing a different camera system. And my question is, do you think the 5D Mark IV has what it takes to persuade you to give the Canon ecosystem another chance?
0: Uh, I have to say yes. Um, I have to say yes, because I was um, more impressed than I expected to be. I mean, I think whenever you go into a situation where you're working with a high-end camera, there's a baseline expectation that it's going to be great. But this is not just great. It's not just about, okay, this camera... Has good output, right? Because we've we've learned, and I have learned the hard way that uh, there's more <laughs> to choosing a camera than uh, than just that technical level. And and what delighted me most was how um, it almost felt like you know slipping back into a comfortable pair of, of shoes where I knew everything. Even though this camera has a whole bunch of new functionality, it kind of all works the way I expect it to. The muscle memory is still there, and. The output is now at a level where I just... I mean, it, even in the past, I've said its it was at a level where any mistakes were clearly my fault and not the camera's <laughs> fault. And that's thats more true now than it was then. But um, yeah, this is definitely the camera that um, I would say has convinced me that giving Canon another try um, is reasonable and is, is actually in many ways very tempting. Uh, the the right. big hurdle is, of course, price because... Um, that has not changed or in any way... Um, it's diminished. actually gone up quite a bit. Yeah, I remember the
1: 5D um, Mark III used to be like 2500 US dollars, and now it's like more like 4000 right?
0: Yeah, and in Canadian pesos, that of course translates into an absurd amount of money. Definitely. That there's, there's no possible way I can justify But But um, what it has done is it's kind of made me realize that possibly my ideal setup would involve... Um, multiple camera systems that are optimized for different things. Um, Mm -hmm. Canon might have a place alongside a mirrorless system like Fujifilm or Olympus. Um, Right. And between the two of them, I would have things covered. So if I'm going on trips and things like that where weight and um, reach and things like that are a big concern, I'm thinking specifically of my Africa trip coming up um, in the fall, that's the kind of area where Olympus is going to shine. Yeah. Whereas for work um, or portraiture or stuff like that, where the shallow depth of field is nice, um, you know those kinds of things, that's where something like a Canon is is difficult to to beat for my particular usage. So it's it's got me rethinking what my ideal setup might look like and um, potentially charting a path towards it, um, right. which is exciting. You know that's that's an interesting change of pace, and it's um, I think really what it is is just a realization that. Um, Things have changed in, in Canon's ecosystem. And, and while we make fun of them for moving slowly, when they do get where they're going, um, good things happen.
1: Yeah, and we're all better off for it. And uh, just to be absolutely clear, we like to, like I said, we like to make, for, make fun of DSLRs, but it is just a ton of fun to shoot a DSLR. It, yes, it just yeah, is. Yeah, for sure. So if you, if you decide to take the plunge and go for it, I just hope you enjoy it, man, because it's going to be one hell of a ride.
0: (laughs) We'll see what happens.
1: (laughs) All right. So with that out of the way, we should probably talk about all the million things
0: Apple announced over this past week. Shouldn't we? Yeah, I think we should. I think we should. So, I mean, just right off the bat on the hardware side, all of the Mac lineup essentially got a spec bump. So that means the MacBooks, including the MacBook Pros, the standard little MacBooks, the iMacs, you know, all of them have refreshed specs. But it's um,
1: it's not a new design, so it doesn't count.
0: Well, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't count so much. <laughs> what is new, however, on the Mac side of things, and one thing that I think is going to be um, very appealing to a lot of professional photographers is the new iMac Pro. Oh, which yeah. Which is not available just yet, but essentially it is taking the form factor of the current iMacs and turbocharging the internals. Like this thing has... Some ridiculous specs. Um, you can you can put just an absurd amount of computing power in it. More than I expected, they could actually get to work within that um, chassis. Yeah. To be honest with you, I wonder
1: uh, how they how they manage to cool the thing off. Like I it, don't know. It, it just
0: it doesn't make any sense
1: because the current IMAX are already kind of like on the edge of what their what their thermal envelopes allow for. So yeah. to keep the same external physical size and and just Turbocharge it, like you said, in in such a great way. It's it's impressive, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and one of the things, uh, you know, the the key differentiating factors here, uh, the current iMacs are effectively built with laptop components. A lot of the chips inside them are um, laptop grade components, yeah. and the Mac, uh, the, sorry, the iMac Pro, um, is switching to Xeon chips and desktop class um, architectures. Pretty much across the board right like which
1: workstation is, class architecture work, yeah, <laughs> exactly like not
0: even not just desktop but like yeah you're right um server class workstation class stuff which is basically it's what people have been asking for for a very long time um so to have that finally delivered um is is great i mean there's there's some typical apple style limitations where um my understanding is that you will not be able to um change the RAM. So what you yeah. buy is what you get. So that's unlike the current iMacs. Um, and that's unfortunate because, you know, myself and I, I'm sure a lot of other people typically buy their Mac computers with the minimum amount of RAM and then augment right. it with third-party RAM because it's significantly more affordable. So that's not that's not going to happen anymore. Unfortunately. Yeah, but, but I
1: think this is totally intentional on Apple's part. Because if you think about it, this is essentially a Mac Pro, like, contained within an iMac's body. For sure. And for sure. and the question, the natural question to ask there is, what do we need a, a Mac Pro for then? And I think that's expandability and, and upgradability. That's what the Mac Pro should excel at. And if, well, I mean, after all, Apple has announced that they're working on a new Mac Pro, which is going to come probably next year. So with that out of the way, they can accept several different compromises for this iMac Pro that they wouldn't be comfortable assuming for the Mac Pro. Yeah. And non-upgradable RAM seems to be definitely one of those. <laughs> or yeah. non-upgradable anything, for that matter.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm surprised by it. And it's it's good of them, I think, to draw a line in the sand because they're like, okay, look, you, you guys have been asking for Pro-level stuff, so we're listening, but here's how we do it. And, and in their case, right. the I think they see the iMac Pro as... Um, basically aimed at um video producers photographers people who need um high-end performance but are not so cons- like that performance has a certain ceiling right their requirements right now and so for them it's not the end of the world if they can't replace the ram whereas the upcoming mac pro and by the way it's very cool that they are actually doing a separate mac pro because when i first saw iMac pro i thought oh okay this is what the next gen mac pro is but no there will be a new mac pro and that will oh, be oh yeah a modular machine that is somehow even more powerful than the iMac Pro. Um, so that, you know, the fact that they now have those two split out is is great. Because like you said, the, the folks who need expandability are going to wait for the Mac Pro and that thing is going to be a beast that they can buy now and then continue upgrading as demands um, grow. And whether that's for like advanced scientific computation or right. high-end VR or, you know, whatever it is that requires the absolute top-notch performance i'm just pleased that apple is finally back in the game like it's it's addressing that market again because we've heard for quite a while now that you know they're not interested in in yeah. pros and i think that if this wwdc has done anything it's taught us that um well it's it's told us that apple is concerned it's whether it was before or it's just responding to all the negative feedback we you know we won't know but the end result is we're going to get good stuff
1: yeah, and to be fair, uh, and to be honest, I, I'm not really tempted by the new iMac Pro just because I know the Mac Pro is coming. And right, I yeah. am so, so eager to see what that looks like. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to buy it because really I don't need a, a desktop uh, like that <laughs> for my current needs. It's it's just completely overkill. Yeah, But I just love it. I just, the, the Mac Pro has always been on my bucket list. And it's just a great computer. So, if they release it next year with a brand new Apple Pro display, it's going to be very hard to say no.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? If nothing else, like the tension feels like it's been removed, right? Because it used to be like, is it updated? Is it dead? Is it like, what's going on? Now, at least we know it's coming. It's a real thing. They're working on it. It'll be next year. Like, that's that's something that we can start planning around. And I think that was a frustration that we expressed on on other episodes in the past, where it's like, it's not a problem that it takes a while to build a great machine. It's a problem when you don't communicate any of those timelines. Because right. for small businesses, for large businesses that are buying these things in bulk and trying to plan their IT budgets, like you can't do that on no information, right? And they'll switch systems. They'll just be like, okay, well, it's less of a hassle to just go with Windows machines right. rather than trying to, you know, and many people what, have been doing that understandably.
1: Yeah. I mean yeah. you can you can't just release a brand new Mac Pro in 2013 and then not update it for 4 years. It's no. just it's just untenable. And no. so yes, they learned their lesson. Yeah, and it was very overspecced at the time, but 4 years later is a very long time and right now the Mac Pro is just not competitive at all. And it doesn't help that they've been selling it at its original selling price. Uh until very, very recently, so yeah, yeah, it was a just a terrible value, and yeah. now at least they've, you know, like discounted it a little bit, and I think it it must be, like, sales must must have just frozen because people. I, I mean, I wouldn't buy a Mac Pro today unless I absolutely needed it, and even if I absolutely needed it, I would probably look at a Windows machine before buying one of these.
0: Yeah. So yeah,
1: for sure. Anyway. So that was it for the Mac hardware. How about the software?
0: So they. Um, <laughs> it's I can't a funny name.
1: It. I mean, there's no way around it. Let's just can't, acknowledge uh, it.
0: Okay, yeah. So the next version of Mac OS is called Hi Sierra. And <laughs> Apple got out ahead of all the drug jokes and made them right there in the keynote, which, you know, okay. They are based in California. What am I? <laughs> and it might be say?
1: my Spanish ear talking, but it sounds a lot like Hey Siri to me.
0: It almost does. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. <laughs> um, but uh, as far as actual, like, whiz-bang features, High Sierra is actually very quiet. Um, user-facing stuff is very minimal. It it strikes me as a lot um, under the hood. And probably the biggest change is that they are rolling out the Apple file system as right. the default. That's going to be a big one. that's huge. That is, yeah. That's a really important change. And it's a, an important change that, again, is not really um, within the consumer sphere of awareness. Um, but it's funny, it'll make a difference in ways that people won't realize is because of this, like suddenly file copying and stuff like that is going to get like way faster. And people will just be like, Oh man, that's, that's amazing. How did they, you know? Yeah. And within a
1: day, everyone will take it for granted. Of course, yeah, they will. <laughs> but I'm, I'm actually concerned, uh, I wonder if we'll see many horror stories of people upgrading to APFS and then suddenly losing their entire hard drive. Because we've yeah. already gone through the transition in iOS and nothing happened there, like literally nothing. I didn't hear a yeah. single case of anyone losing data over the transition. But on the Mac, I think it's going to be a, li- a little bit more complicated.
0: Yeah, it's going to be tough to see because on you know iOS is a controlled environment, so right. it made sense for them to push it out there first, and they've had it you know live on millions of devices around the world as a test bed, which is great. Um, but on the other hand, like you said, here here on the Mac side, there's it's messier. You know, like there's a lot of crap and a lot of legacy software, and yeah. things are not as tightly controlled. And it's man, and I, you I would have be to deal with. Wary
1: mechanical hard drives there are probably on the brink of failure as it is and forcing them to go through this transition might just might just be the thing that pushes them over the edge and people are going to blame apple and not the fact that they have a seven-year-old mechanical hard drive inside of their machine so yeah that they're in for for a bumpy ride for sure yeah
0: apple's never been shy about um being very aggressive with you know innovation and on the one hand that's great but in this particular instance it's not like removing a port it's like this could break everything right so so the the risks are a little higher on the other hand i guess you know their their choice was to wait on it another year which would have seemed a little arbitrary having rolled it out on iOS like i'm i think that they just figured okay let's let's rip the Band-Aid off let's get it out there in the world we'll deal with the problems um And honestly, like I, I do not know enough about low level file systems to understand the implications of that transition. Like it might actually not be as scary as it sounds. Um, I'm sure that this is the kind of thing that they've done a lot of testing for. I just don't understand because it's, it's, it lives under the files, right? So theoretically software shouldn't break unless it's using file transfer stuff in a very particular way. Nobody
1: does that, do they? Yeah, you know, it's
0: it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly. It's going to be scary. I'm certainly not going to be doing it <laughs> on my main machine on day one.
1: Right, um, me neither.
0: But it's, you know, it's cool. It's interesting. Um, that's sort of the main headline feature though. Um, beyond that, there's, there's a bunch of little things um, relevant to photography is the fact that Photos is continuing to um, have more interesting new features. So they've got a curves tool and some other... Um, enhancements to the editing that you can do, right. um, which is good, it's pretty neat.
1: Yeah, for some reason, I find it a little bit hard to get excited about improvements to photos because it's just not not appealing to me in any way. But but it's good that they're making it better for, for those people who can use it and get the most out of it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is important because that is how most people are interacting with their photos. And if, if right. someone is going to do, like, if, if your average user... Is going to do photo editing, they're going to do it in photos rather than like it's no one's buying Photoshop sure, as a casual no, that's user or anything that's like true. that. And yes, enough. there are options like Pixelmator and whatever. But again, the 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 standard user who just wants to make some, some basic adjustments, it's great to have those tools right in the one environment so they don't have to go elsewhere. So yeah, it's it's good for professional photographers. Whether or not it fits into any workflow, uh, who knows? Like it happens to fit into mine. Um, and we'll talk a little bit later about how exactly and whether that's a good workflow or not. But ultimately, you know, they're still working on photos. It's positive. Um, There's also something that ties into iOS, which um, I'm interested in um, as far as the file formats, because um, one of the other headline features is that HEVC or um, H.265. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, like basically they're rolling out support for newer encoding standards for video and for images, which should allow um, higher fidelity at lower file sizes, basically.
1: Right, so basically all, all of your JPEGs will be half the size, approximately. Which means you can take more photos before running out of storage in your iPhone, or uh, I don't know, keeping more free space or whatever you want to do. But the, yeah. the thing is, this is Apple only for now. So we, we've yeah. been talking about this behind the scenes before uh, before we started recording this episode. How is Apple going to deal with this? Because they have a very efficient codec, but they're the only ones who are using it. What happens when you send a picture to someone
0: else? Well, my understanding is that on the iOS side of things, at least, they are. it's just re-encoded on the fly when it's shared. Right. So if it's shared to a non-Apple device, it's just transformed presumably into a JPEG or an H.264 video and off it goes, which is good. What I don't really understand yet is how all of this applies to the Mac because my understanding right now is that it's not retroactively converting your JPEGs into this format. It's just sort of capturing it in the format going forward. So what I'm wondering is on the Mac side of things, if you're using iCloud Photo Library um, with optimized storage on, is it going to remove the JPEGs reconvert from the originals into this new high-efficiency format and serve those down to your Mac instead? Because that would be a way to preserve the originals, whether they're RAWs or JPEGs or whatever they are, but re-encode them on your Mac, again, just for the space savings, and then if you ever share them outside of that, you get a JPEG. That's Um, a
1: very interesting question. I don't think so. I think once the picture is in JPEG format, that's it. I I mean, it wouldn't make... A lot of sense to re-encode a jpeg the no. savings would be very minimal no i mean that's I the sort of thing you the raw can...
0: files more
1: right if you're yeah. starting off with a raw file then definitely i think even the mac will use this havc codec and, and then convert them to the to the better size yeah
0: i mean at, at least that's what i'd do <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's almost like their their own equivalent of uh, lightroom smart previews right that right. would be How this would function so a lot of this is still up in the air i mean we're only a couple days after the keynote now so there's a lot of details that will be um revealed and uncovered um in the coming weeks but it's still promising um again uh, high sierra in general i think is is a pretty subtle change in terms of features it's all about the underlying architecture which i'm okay with like that's that's a good you know the mac is a very well-established platform so similar to DSLRs there's not yeah. you know you don't need to make sweeping changes.
1: Yeah, don't don't fix what's not broken basically. Okay, so how about iOS?
0: How about it? <laughs>
1: <clears throat> oh my, there was a, there was a ton of stuff here, especially for all of you iPad users
0: out there. Yeah, so I um I think a lot of us iPad users were starting to get very antsy because iOS 10 in particular felt like they just forgot that they make the iPad, you know, there was there was essentially no I, uh, iPad-specific features at all. There was nothing that was supporting their marketing claims of the iPad as a replacement for a laptop, and you know things like this. Yeah, um, that was a bit
1: disappointing. And it, that it was. If you take that and compare it with the declining sales of the iPad category, it didn't bode well for the future of the product. So this is a this is a very refreshing change of pace.
0: Yeah. And, and from, you know, I, I also think that the declining sales, while, you know, we've talked about it before as, as a symptom of, of just tablets in general being a very strange market, I also think it had to do, in the iPad's case, with Apple's unclear messaging. And I think it was um, Ben Brooks and a bunch of others have pointed this out, but he was the most recent one who was saying that, you know, Apple seems to have had a an identity problem with the iPad where even they didn't quite know what they wanted it to be mm-hmm. um, and how to present it. You know, it was, you know, initially it was one thing and then it was another thing. And it's only in the last little while that they've really um, galvanized on this idea of the iPad as a computer, like the, right. it's just, it's a computer. That is what it is. It's a new kind of computer. It will replace your laptop and this is how it's going to work, right? That's the, right. That's the messaging. And the hardware is there, and now I feel like they've finally made software adjustments with iOS 11 to facilitate that, basically. So I'm, I'm hoping that that helps them in terms of sales, but also in terms of, you know, just finally having the clarity of, okay, this is where an iPad fits into your life. This is what you can do with it.
1: And I find it very funny that most of the new features, basically what they're doing is it making the iPad a lot more like the Mac. Yeah, <laughs> which is ironic in a, in a very real way.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's bizarre. I mean, I, I think they've done it so far, at least. I think the way that they've done it is um, well handled. But yeah, uh, it is. Uh, yeah, it, it is a bit of a convergence there.
1: Yeah, and and I remember Marco Orman said on Twitter, like, turns out the past of computing sure had a a ton of good ideas. (laughs) And if you think about it, most of the features they've introduced are basically like replicating Finder, mission control, windowing, actual windowing, and a bunch of other stuff. That's basically what they've introduced to iOS. And those are all features that have been in macOS for over a decade. Yeah.
0: I totally was not expecting windowing. That was a that took me by surprise. Um, I figured they would refine the uh, the split view stuff um, right. and especially the the app switching situation, which was terrible. Um, but I did not think that we would also get windowing because now it essentially means that we have a, another state, you know, another possible state of things where you keep a full screen app in the background and you just have a mini app floating over top of it. Right. Um, and it it works. It's you know, I think it's a good solution, but it's just uh, they're they're really starting to add complexity in a way that I think they were very shy about before.
1: Yeah, because they had this notion that iOS iOS was supposed to be super easy to use, and it still is. But now we're finally getting to the point where they're comfortable adding complexity to the system, and I think that's very good for the platform. I think it was sorely needed, and uh, I, for one, I'm very glad that they're doing it. I I'm not convinced the iPad is the right tool for me, at least for the time being, uh, but that doesn't mean I don't appreciate all the improvements that Apple is introducing to it. And oh, yeah. definitely it makes me feel better about it long term, because I think it might get to a point where I would feel comfortable using it, even though if it, it's not quite there yet. So, yeah, I'm eager to see what the future brings for the for the category,
0: yeah, and it's like with anything else, it's not going to be all things to all people, but' right. no, again, that's okay. it's finally it's finally living up to the promises that Apple's been making about it, and it's finally starting to um live up to the potential that I think a lot of us earlier adopters were hoping it would um, right you know i mean this is this is really starting to look a lot like what I was envisioning um you know when when the iPad pro hardware. First showed up. This is the kind of software that I was hoping would be running on. It's something that borrows the parts of macOS that are required to facilitate professional workflows while retaining the um, abstraction, the simplicity, and the newness, I guess, that iOS is is famous for. And the, the complexity in particular doesn't bother me because I think that if they had launched with this level of complexity, a lot of traditional computer users might have gone uh, gotten on board sooner. Right. But I don't think it would have been good for the future of the platform overall, right? Like, this way, they have built... Like, generations of people have now come up learning iOS as their primary computing um, interface. Like, they don't have the cruft of traditional computing, right. uh, you know, habits, basically. So for them, it's they're not pining after a file system. That's not something that is of interest to them. That's not... Uh, th- their workflows already take into account the way iOS used to work. So now Apple can build on that and get to the same level of complexity that's required without necessarily adopting all of the old habits. So it's they're in an interesting place. I, I'm not sure you know, what the, the long-term trajectory looks like, but at least for now, this is a very meaningful step forward for people who want to use the iPad for work, like for, for right. professional stuff.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. They they needed to have a learning curve that started right at the bottom. And they did just that. And for my personal taste, they took a little longer than they probably should have. Uh, and things cooled down a little bit uh, a few years ago. Yeah. I think they, they could have been a, a little bit more aggressive in ramping things up. But if they're finally getting there, they might be able to rekindle the interest in the platform. So I think that's that's very positive, and I think uh, this is going to be a very good year for the iPad, or at least I hope so.
0: I hope so too. <laughs> I
2: bought one, so
1: <laughs>
0: it better be. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, folks, it's time to bid Alvaro farewell for this episode. He's got places to be. Um, I, however, do not. And so i have invited friend of the show thomas wong to join me to talk a little bit more about the ipad side of things because thomas like myself is one of the i guess early adopters of ipad pro hardware and he's been doing his best to use it in a professional context for photography so thomas welcome to the show thanks very much Maria. it's good to be here and just so that you guys can imagine what this actually looks like thomas is sitting maybe four inches beside me. We're snuggled up pretty tight here. Um, right now we're on the same microphone, so this is kind of a, a new thing for the show, uh, you know, live action recording. Um, but anyway, we'll, uh, we'll dive right in. So iOS 11, um, first of all, because you weren't here for the part where Alvaro and I talked about this, um, what were your like just general impressions of WWDC and specifically the stuff that pertains to us as photographers?
2: Uh, I was freaking out for most of the presentation because it took most of the presentation for them to get to the iPad stuff yeah. I was are like we're gonna talk about six things today. I'm like, what's number five? <laughs> um, when they finally brought out the iPad, it was still kind of, it was still had me on the edge of my seat Because it's like are they just gonna introduce another panel to an app like a third a fourth panel to mail Or is it gonna be something really cool? Um, the fact that we got files is a huge, huge deal. I mean, even though we probably will do most of our photo management and stuff like Lightroom or Photos, uh, being able to bring in a raw file from like Dropbox or uh, like iCloud Drive now that we can actually use it um, and then use it in other apps like Affinity, that's going to be really killer for photo shoots. And like to be able to do all of my processing from a shoot right on the iPad.
0: Yeah, it's going to be pretty wild. I have been playing around with the beta and uh, shortly after I put it on, um, you did the same. (laughs) So we can actually walk through some of this live. Um, I actually managed to completely brick my iPad within a couple of hours of installing the first beta. Um, I tried the new, one of the new features, um, has nothing to do with photography, but it's, it's neat is that now from the lock screen, if you tap the screen with your pencil, Uh, It will summon a blank note in Apple Notes, and you can start sketching or doing whatever you want to do. Except if you're on beta 1 on my iPad, where what it'll actually do is completely kill your device. I had to reset it to factory settings, restore my latest... it was a big hassle. Anyway, now I'm back on iOS 11, the beta. Thomas, you are as well now. We've both had, I guess, about a day at this point to, to just toy around with it. Um, what are what are first impressions
2: like? I'd say I'm pretty optimistic about the multitasking. I think it could still use more keyboard stuff. I'm hoping they get more keyboard love over time. But uh, I kind of feel like the iPad Pro that I bought like a year and a half ago is starting to wake up now. Like this is what it was waiting for. This is why I have a 12.9-inch screen so, that I can actually do like two handed multitasking gestures, pick up several files, move into a different app, and then put them there. Like that, I think on a smaller screen like the 9.7, it can feel a little bit more cramped. So, I'm really excited about exploring more of that as we go through the betas, see what it's like to use multitasking in a day to day basis.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, one of the things that I was really happy about uh, counterintuitively is the fact that it's the first time my iPad has felt slow. Um, so what I did was I opened a, uh, one of my random raw files, uh, a recent one in Affinity Photo. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about Affinity Photo in a bit, but Affinity Photo is essentially a professional grade, um, photo editor. It's kind of like a, it's closer to Photoshop than it is to Lightroom. Mm -hmm. Um, we've talked about it before on the show. Anyway, now it exists on the iPad and it is fantastic. It's basically a direct translation of the Mac app with affordances for the touch, um, interface. But what was interesting is that i in exporting this photo that i was playing around with it took a long time and it's the first time that i can recall doing anything really on my ipad that took a long time which is good i mean to me this is this is positive because it means finally there is software that is straining the capabilities of the hardware and we've said for a long time now that uh, you know the big problem with ipad is as a professional thing is the software end of things like the hardware has always been very capable and ahead of what the software demands of it in most cases. And now I feel like we're finally at the point where software is starting to emerge that showcases the potential of the hardware and makes you actually feel like, oh, I want a more powerful iPad, right? which is something that I, it's a thought that I just never had before. Like I never pined after the the latest a generation processor because it's like it doesn't everything my iPad does, it does fast. So what what difference does it make?
2: Yeah, I'd say um like it it's starting to make me think about what other things we could do on it. Like for the longest time I haven't thought about video editing. I haven't thought about video editing on the iPad. But now that we do have things like files, it actually could be something we could do, especially now that we've got multi-touch and you can drag several clips onto a timeline. That it would actually be really really cool to see something like Final Cut come to this. Like that's what I've been playing with on the side. Um, when I have my XD2, but uh, for photography um, I'm actually like even though I'm optimistic about using the iPad in other cases like for more writing for more everyday use uh, and even though I'm excited about Affinity I still feel like stuff like uh, importing files to the iPad is still gonna be a weird kind of roundabout solution because not only do you need an adapter all the time you put your SD card in but then you have to import your photos to the Photos app, then import them to Lightroom. And then if you want to keep your stuff in Photos, ultimately, you have to remember to take them out of Photos first, then export them to Photos again. So like there's this weird sort of runaround thing just because uh, dedicated photo apps can't just import the files straight from an SD card.
0: Yeah, and I think that's gonna be one of the areas where files either will evolve in the future or it's something that we're just gonna see um, the the boundaries of during this beta, um, because it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility that we actually don't quite understand the full scope of what this files app can do yet. Um, I mean, we are, like at the point of recording this, we're literally a couple of days uh, after WWDC's keynote, right? So we, we don't know yet what is going on fully. Um, my experience of it so far has been positive in the sense that the, um, the raw file that I was playing with that I mentioned earlier, I tossed it onto my desktop um, on my Mac. And of course, because of iCloud document syncing, I was able to retrieve it from within Affinity Photo on my iPad That's without cool. importing it into, like it didn't come from photos. It didn't, it was none of that crap. It was just directly from the file system in iCloud into the app that I wanted to work with it in. So I can, I can definitely see progress being made on that front Um, and it makes me kind of excited. Um, But one of the things that we should talk about is photos itself, iCloud photos, because there have been some adjustments to how it works. I think the most um, notable feature that they talked about in the keynote at least was that um, all that faces data and and, um, stuff that used to be segregated on each device and calculated on each device for privacy reasons um now they have of course used their whatever differential privacy privacy stuff to make it so <laughs> that they can they can synchronize that um across everything. So now that's a singular database, you know, it's computed once and then it's just shared everywhere. So you no longer have to worry about differing face data on different machines or anything like that. So that's that's a step forward. I know that in my case at least I have adopted iCloud photo library as a fairly important component in my own photography workflow. Um, you actually wrote a really cool article, I guess, several months ago now.
2: Was it the iCloud photo library versus Lightroom thing?
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll drop a link in the show notes. But that basically was you trying to explore how it fits into things and, and you know, what, what kind of workflow you can actually have as a photographer because of the way that the file system works. Um, has any of this new stuff
2: changed your outlook on that? I'd say it's... It actually, it makes it a bit more confusing again, because on the one hand, I would say that iCloud Photo Library and the Photos app is a better photo viewing experience, because as long as you have everything downloaded, it shows at full res immediately. Yeah. And it's also good because we take more pictures than ever. It surfaces your cool pictures, or it surfaces that vacation from one year ago when you weren't necessarily thinking about looking at them. Yeah. Right. Because when I when I load up Lightroom, I'm usually thinking about, oh, let me take a look at those files I just imported last time. And let me work on those files. And it's easy to forget, like, you know what? I took twelve hundred pictures in Japan and I really like those pictures. Maybe I should go look at them again. And Photos does a fantastic job of surfacing that on a pretty uh, regular basis. So it's really tempting to want for me to go back to photos as either my all-in-one like a the place where I both edit and store photos or at least as the end destination because it's so good at resurfacing things.
0: Yeah, and that's basically the way that I've been using it is for, for me Lightroom is still the um the initial import destination on my desktop. Um it is still where I do the vast majority of my editing, but anything that I consider completed, I export in full you know, resolution as a JPEG, and I toss that into iCloud Photo Library, which means that at any given time, the selects, if you will, from a, from a shoot or from an outing or from whatever, are in iCloud Photo Library. And if it's something more casual where I'm not actually interested in doing editing or anything like that, I will just directly pull it off the card into iCloud Photo Library directly. Um, And especially as someone who shoots um, Fujifilm primarily and Olympus and, you know, these other systems that provide very, very good JPEGs right out of the camera. And in many cases, you can get away without tremendous editing requirements. um, That's a really nice workflow because straight from the camera, in it goes. And it's just, it's there on all my devices um, immediately. And like you said, the, the viewing experience um, by and large is, is the best that I've, found I, I would say maybe Google Photos does a better job because it does um like in the grid view it'll actually like enlarge it, yeah exactly yeah. like s- certain photos will be bigger than others just because it thinks that those are more interesting and very often they are so
2: well I've got a question for you because I'm a big sucker for workflows so you said that you like to keep you know the finals there and you and even sometimes you just well yeah because the finals would have been edited in Lightroom. Now, how do you kind of mark things that, how do you tell between the photos that you have exported to iCloud Photo Library when you go back to Lightroom? Like, how do you know you've already exported them? That's the thing that that always gets me about these kinds of workflows. It's like, what files or photos could I kind of leave behind by accident because I didn't put a tag or I didn't star it the right way? Like, it might just be left in Lightroom edited, but not brought to my kind of master iCloud photo library
0: that's a it's something that I don't have a good solution to right now not because one is not available but because I'm lazy I guess (laughs) (laughs) well so um, theoretically what I would do to solve that that problem um, would be to pick a color and just assign it to everything that's exported in and specifically everything that's pulled into iCloud photo library I haven't done that yet because To be honest, for whatever reason, I've never run into that as an issue. Like I'd never feel as though I am um, missing photos or have sort of Mm -hmm. left behind certain shots Um, because I'm usually pretty good. Like when I edit a session, again, whatever it may be, I'm pretty good about like doing the editing and the exporting in the same span of time. So I'm very rarely like doing multiple sessions and having to come back and be like, oh, wait, did I did I? Push that mm-hmm. one out already. Is it eh, eh. like I, I don't run into the issue, but if I did, that would be I think the the best solution because I am not a big fan of metadata micromanaging mm-hmm. in the sense that I'm not like I don't attach tons of keywords. I'm not I don't use stars at all. I'm a flag person. You know, it's either good or it's not. Um, so from that perspective, I you know the colors are available to me. I. I I may as well start doing that. Um, But again, it's just been a a laziness thing. I haven't really wanted to.
2: Although the colors don't sync to Lightroom Mobile right now. Right now. Right, yeah. (laughs) Hopefully soon, yeah. Um, Because, like, that's the thing. Like, right now I keep everything in Lightroom as kind of my master destination. And it's also the place where I edit things. Um, And the reason that's cool on the iPad, because I've got 128 gigs on the iPad, and I thought at the time, like, this is amazing, I can keep everything on here. And then I started shooting some RAW, and then I could only keep like (laughs) some things on there. Uh, So the really cool thing is I I keep collections, and then you can choose on Lightroom Mobile which collection you would like to download for offline. And everything else, literally everything else, is just streamed when when you wanna view it. So that lets me pick and choose what I'd like to keep on the iPad, Um, so if I'm, if I've got like a major vacation, those will stay on the iPad, but if it's just general shots from the last year, I'll stream those. And the reason this is a big deal to me is because there've been some moments, um, before when I used iCloud photo library and I tried that optimized setting, which basically it's a smart space saving setting so that if you start to run out of room, it's going to intelligently delete some of your older photos, keep them in iCloud. And then it's going to just try and keep the latest ones. Um, I wanted to show off a vacation one time and I didn't have any internet. And what I ended up showing was a bunch of squares and pixels to family because there was no internet. The The thumbnails looked decent, but when you tapped on them, they didn't load. And so for me, like that's the downside of iCloud photo library. It is convenient as long as you have internet and good internet all the time, but it doesn't let you sort of pick and choose enough. And that's why Lightroom is really attractive to me right now.
0: Yeah. And theoretically, there is the 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 quote unquote trick of favoriting photos, right? Because that is intended to bias iCloud Photo Library in protecting those photos, not um clearing them away if it needs to, you know, win back space. But you have had multiple experiences where that has not been the case. And mm-hmm. so, of course, for you it's going to lose trust. I've actually had a decent amount of luck with the favorites. It it seems to me that when I favorite a photo, it stays on the device. Um, I also have a 128 gigabyte iPad Pro, we, we have the same, it's really, it's ridiculous. We literally have the same <laughs> iPad, it's, anyway. Um, one of the things though that that you sort of brought up here with uh, with storage concerns um, pertains to the new iPad Pro. So one of the things that changed hardware-wise um, from the first generation to this one is that they're now available in higher storage tiers. So first of all, the baseline is 64 instead of, uh, it was 32 before,
2: right? I think so. 32, 32 yeah. 120, uh, 32 64 128, I think. And then the when they introduced the 9.7 last year, that got year, 256. That got 256. Yeah,
0: okay, that's the way it was. Yeah, that was what was throwing me off. Anyway, so now they all start at 60 well, both start at 64 and then the tiers beyond that are 256 and 512. That's amazing. So that's like laptop territory in terms mm-hmm. of storage space, which um I'm wondering if that's going to change the game for people like us who, you know, are, are going to be considering storing raws, like I'm thinking about it now for a trip, right? Like so my Africa trip trip is coming up and I have an external drive that does that automatically pulls stuff off of the SD card. So that's like one backup location. But if I can also pull things onto the iPad, especially now that the iPad is going to have way more in the way of um, editing capabilities and file management capabilities, if it also has the storage space, then it suddenly becomes a very viable offloading point um, for travel photos, which is a big deal, right? Because it it used to be the case that the iPad was not, it didn't really have a particularly good place in a travel photographer's workflow because it wasn't really as useful as a laptop in many ways. Um, But we're getting to the point where I, I feel like the tide's may be turning a little bit in the iPad's favor there because... By and large, it is lighter than most laptops. Um, it will certainly last longer in terms of battery life, and typically the screen is better than most laptop screens, unless you're talking about you know very high end devices. So, from all those perspectives, I think that the iPad is the iPad Pro specifically is looking more and more like a um, excellent photographer's traveling companion and. I intend to test that theory with my upcoming travels over the summer, um, and hopefully I'll be able to report back at that point. Um, my, my big my big hope is that the 10.5 um, fits into that size sweet spot, where right now there are times when I just, like my 12.9 is just like, this is unwieldy. It's too large, it's awkward, I don't want to take this with me.
2: It's a sketchpad with you everywhere, when yeah. sometimes you just want a notebook or yep. you, you know, a piece of paper.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect analogy for it. It it really does feel like a big sketchbook. And again, when you're using it, like when what you need is a sketchbook, it's remarkable and it's amazing and it's terrific. But when you don't want that, then it's a burden. And it's ridiculous because the MacBook, the 12 inch little MacBook is smaller and lighter. And that's just bizarre, right? Like how how is it that a laptop is lighter than an iPad? But you know, that's that's the way it is. And Um, this new generation doesn't change that. The 12.9 is still a large iPad. It's still bigger. Um, but one thing I was very happy to see is that they finally equalized their capabilities in terms of the Mm -hmm. displays, in terms of true tone, in terms of, um, uh, the other display technology, which they're calling promotion, um, promotion. And basically that is marketing speak for it's got a 120 Hertz refresh rate now. So that's great. I mean, that's going to look nice for scrolling. Um, Do you know what I love? I love that. So Microsoft had their Surface stuff, right? And, And they just announced the new Surface Pen. And they're like, oh, yeah, we got the latency down. It's better than the Apple Pencil. Ha, new Pencil, 100 bucks. Great. And then Apple just turns around with the new iPads. And now their latency is even lower than the surfaces, but you don't need a new pencil. It's the same old thing
2: that was actually really, really surprising, as in the fact that we don't need to buy a new pencil because that's a typical Apple move. yeah, it's like buy the new faster pencil. Yes, yeah. you didn't know your pencil was slow,
0: yeah. now to be fair, what they're saying is buy a new iPad, which is that's significantly true. more, which that's is significantly true. more expensive than buy a new pencil. But still, it is yeah. it is neat that they were able to provide that um that performance boost without having to change the pencil hardware, Um, you know, I I feel like clearly they were aiming for this right from the start, so they were able to just catch up on the on the tablet end of things this gen.
2: Like the, it's really interesting to see how much they've played with the form factor over the years. I mean, so they start off with that 9.7 inch screen, and then they introduce that iPad mini, and I got suckered into that one. It was a slower iPad that was smaller and I bought that. Um, but it, because it's just like for for such a long time we were trying to see what we wanted out of these like little slates, right? Like if we're gonna take this around, is this gonna be like just a photo viewing device? Can I start writing on it? Um, so this new 10.5 inch is is yet another promised sweet spot to me because it's slightly bigger than that 9.7 it's not much bigger in terms of size, but you do get 20% more screen size, which is pretty significant. Um, and then now you get you, know, you get all the Pro features all in one device instead of having to choose, do I want the nicer screen or do I want the, the faster processor of the 12.9? I guess actually the only thing I don't know about is whether the 10.5 has the same amount of RAM. Because that's one thing where the 9.7 from last year is kind of hampered. It's got two gigs.
0: Yeah, it has two, and as of uh, this morning, at least, when um, one of the first, I think it was NN Tech um, posted their sort of preview, and as far as they're concerned, they don't know yet how much RAM is in the 10.5. It's certainly not been announced officially. It would be great if it was the same amount on both. Um, It seems a little unlikely, but what may happen is that they've bumped it from two to three, and then it would be three and four gigs of RAM, which I I think that's okay. it depends a little bit and part of what is going to be telling is how well it holds up to the greater degree of multitasking that has suddenly become possible right because that's typically where ram comes in exactly. handy on the desktop and now we're getting to the point on iOS where you're you're actually able to do some some real multitasking um and especially like now one of the things i i never thought i would see in iOS but you know lo and behold here it is uh, there's windowing yep you know, we, you can actually have one app floating happily, fully functional above another app that's taking up the full screen real estate of whichever iPad you have. And it works great. I mean, I, I have to say that I've been, um, again, it's I've only had the beta on for a day and a half now, but I've been using that a fair bit. And in my case, at least, it's actually preferable to split view in a lot of cases. Um, because I find that when you start collapsing the form factor of the apps into split view, unless it's like half and half, um, I just, I don't know. I'm the way that my split view usage is in general is that I've got like Safari in three quarters of it. And then just a chat app, you know, whether it's Slack or messages or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, but now messages can just be floating above Safari, right? I'm not giving up any of that. And if there's something in my way, content wise, I can just flick it to the other side.
2: And not just that with the doc, you can now keep a lot of apps like messaging apps altogether, which is what I've been trying. And so if you, if your apps are good iOS citizens and they actually have split view capability, because not all of them do Hangouts, <laughs> yeah. um, and actually Line Messenger doesn't either. Uh, but if they do, you can pop an iMessage open or you can pop a little Slack window open over whatever app you're running. And then when you get other messages, you can just check your dock, which is really nice. So you can just kind of pick and choose which messaging app is going to be the sl- uh, that slide over app, which is, you're right, better than. Split view, because also split view tends to introduce the sidebar on both apps. So both apps have a little sidebar, which means you get a lot less content per app. So in in that way, like I was actually going to say, like, at first I viewed the the 10.5-inch. When you do split view, 50-50 split view, so two apps, that's actually running two iPhone-type apps side by side. So it's like an iPhone layout. And I thought of that as a bad thing at first because it does change the controls for some of them. But now that now that I think about that in the context of having sidebars showing with two iPad apps side by side, you actually might get more useful content out of two iPhone apps.
0: I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good point because, yeah, it's right now, depending on the app, um, you, you might not end up with as much usable space as you would expect to um, even on the large two, uh, 12.9 inch screen. So I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation even on the part of app developers to make best use of these screens. Um, which is fine. I mean, that's, you know, that's the case of with all um, updates. But I I just have to say that so far, I'm really loving the dock concept. And I'm really loving the app switching concept. And what's what's specifically cool to me is that because like I said, a lot of my split view usage is like one main app, and then one particular chat app, like whether it's my writing app in the chat app or Safari and whatever it is. um, Now those combinations can actually exist as preset pairings in this new mission control like view so that you're switching between um almost like workspaces yeah. as it were right rather than like switching the main app and then having to like manually do the like it's before it was really bad now it's actually going to be a very interesting and much more flexible way of using combinations of apps and that to me is um is exactly the kind of step that I wanted them to take like the way that they've implemented windowing is is good like it's it's not it's not like a Mac type of thing it's you're not resizing them you're not mm. you know it, it's a very uh, it's it's limited but it's limited in an intelligent way
2: I was actually gonna say um, it is a little bit Mac like to me just because when you launch two full-screen apps in OS or Mac OS now um, you can have them basically working in a space so that I can switch between a space that has Evernote and messages Side by side, yeah. uh, you know. But I mean, you're right. You, a lot of people don't really work full screen like that. I was um, going to
0: say, I I, I <laughs> often forget that you can do that on Mac OS. I,
2: I do it a lot because I have a 13 inch MacBook.
0: Oh, right. right. Well, then yeah. yeah.
2: Um, but I was going to say also, it's kind of taking that watch OS idea of like swiping between watch faces, right? Like you have one for specifically for workouts, or I keep one as kind of like a, a nighttime mode watch face that's all red, so it's not too bright. So this this is an interesting take on that. I like how they're taking thinking from their other devices and applying it to the iPad.
0: All right, well, I think we can wrap up pretty soon, but I, I, f- I figured a good way to lead out is um, to talk a little bit about Affinity. Because Affinity is, first of all, for, for photographers, it is the proof of concept app that we've been waiting for on an iPad. Um, but it's also an app that, you know, on the show we've talked about before, I'm a big fan of it and i've i'm just i'm so impressed by how seamlessly they've brought the functionality over to the ipad and how natural a lot of it feels like the um part of the introductory thing has you using the pencil to shape the direction of a light source and it just feels so natural like of course you do this with the pencil of course tilting it does that like it's just it feels like a revelation in terms of interacting with the software um I don't know, what, what have your first impressions been of, of Affinity?
2: The, I'd say the very first. I mean, like when it's demoed, I'm amazed because it's being done for me, right? Like, so it's, it, it's always like, oh, look what they can do now. Amazing. It's always a they. It's not a me. Um, however, the, the fact that it's now on a touchscreen does make a very big difference to people like me who, who are used to doing photo editing in Lightroom, but not really taking things into Photoshop. Photoshop is not home to me. You know, uh, and so, like I told you earlier, like seeing two rows of icons, you know one on the left and one on the right, and having each of them pop up a submenu as exciting and 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 um, tool happy as I am, that looks like a lot to a newbie. But being able to actually play with the effects live on screen, dragging your finger around or dragging the pencil around, it makes it it makes me more excited and makes me want to play with this app much more than when I encountered it on the Mac, and I have. So I'm, I'm really impressed by Infinity, and I'm, I'm extra impressed that it has, what, all of the desktop features?
0: I mean, it's, I, I don't know exactly, because yeah. I'm, I'm also just exploring it, but mm-hmm. it seems like all of the core functionality is, is in here.
2: And this is day one of the app launching. This is not like, hey guys, uh, don't worry, you know, um, color editing is coming soon, or the brightness slider will be coming in 1.5. This is day one that's it, it's we're actually kind of seeing that in a bunch of other apps lately i mean like i feel like to do number two Do uh was a big app to bring like desktop like functionality to the ipad and then more recently like things yeah and Thing, all the omni yeah.
0: omni group mm-hmm. stuff as well tends to be right up there
2: yeah so it's it's nice to see an era that's coming now of ipad apps that don't feel compromised they're not like, hey, this is an iPad. Just do this stuff and then go back to your Mac for the rest of the work.
0: Yeah, and that, to me, like, what you were saying about the interface and and how many, <laughs> how many tools there are to wrap your head around and all this stuff that needs to be learned, um, again, this is the kind of thing that makes me happy because it means that software developers are finally willing to go there, to, to have that level of complexity in their apps, just as um, iOS as an operating system has now adopted further complexity than we ever thought it would have. You know, in the early days, we didn't think that iOS was ever going to get this kind of file management and like multi-finger gestures. Like you can, you know, be holding things with one hand and swiping around with the other now. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff that is not going to be immediately intuitive. Like we're past the point where everything is just pick up and play. You will have to learn some things, but it's so much easier to learn those things if you've grown up using only iPads. Like, it will seem very natural. Now you're basically just broadening that skill set, right? Like, the kids who grew up with iOS as their first... um, I I always think of this. Like, there's entire generations now that have grown up with iOS as their primary computing platform, Mm -hmm. and for them, they're going to be picking up this software in no time. Yeah, there's lots of new stuff to learn. Yeah, there's a bunch of tools, but it's already in the... Um, the gestural language that they're familiar with, their the interface is familiar to them, so they will pick it up. Like we we look at it and we're like, oh, okay, but we're bringing this baggage with us, right? Um, so I'm not worried about that. I'm I'm excited because it's I'm willing to learn those things, right? Like it's I just want powerful software. Like it's not any different than on the Mac, right? Like Affinity and and Maya and all these like really powerful high-end pieces of software per year up and play they're not pick up and play but that's fine that's why we love them right because they're capable they they do lots of things and we're finally getting all that kind of energy on the ipad and that's what that's what i've been waiting for
2: yeah this is a this is a really good time to be an ipad user now like it's i i I feel i did feel a little bit tricked before um because i would just get really excited by marketing hype as they'd introduce an iPad Air, an iPad Air 2, and then, oh my God, what's an iPad Pro? And then I buy one and I get split view and I almost never use it because it's just easier to work like I've always worked on an iPad. It's just a bigger screen now. Now we're having all these apps that aren't afraid to throw a lot of controls on there. Because actually Pixelmator is kind of a good example, right? Pixelmator on the Mac is like, I think 60 bucks Canadian. I bought that way back. And i learned to use that that's got a photoshop like menu but when it debuted on ios i think it was like three years ago so it's it deserves while, credit yeah. because it does kick ass but it's also kind of it's a more it's a much more conservative approach to controls you know they tried to i think make up a different control screen and they actually hid a lot of things in like little sub menus and there are a lot of taps deep whereas affinity is like hey you have a 12.9-inch screen. Let's put some toolbars on the side. It's okay to do that.
0: Yeah, they're, they're not shying away from buttons, and it's it's okay. Yeah. Like, it's just a, it's a choice, but I think it's a good one. And there's still the ability to make it all go away with a tap. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's good. I think it, it's one of those things where it takes a while to come up with a good way to condense a complicated interface into a touch-based um, control scheme. But, you know, it helps to have the pencil. And just in general, I think it helps to, to have had this much time and to watch the market and see how people actually interact with their iPads and what they expect of them. And now's the time. So for me, like the big thing is that I hope um, companies like Adobe are going to start taking um, some cues from this. Like Lightroom, I, I actually Lightroom is doing well. Lightroom mm-hmm. is is gaining complexity. It is becoming a powerful tool on mobile as well, which is great. But there's still the the other side of things, the the 18 or 19 Photoshop components that are each their own app. And it's just like, why, you know, mm-hmm. why, why wasn't Adobe first out of the gate with a Photoshop for yeah. iOS that works like this, right? Like now they look stupid because all of a sudden this indie developer has outdone them at their own game on a majority platform. Like it's, it's a, it's a crazy time.
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, when I demoed Affinity to somebody today, it was like, oh, it's like Photoshop, except, well, you couldn't do this on Photoshop on iOS. This is, you'd have to use Affinity for it.
0: I think that that's going to do it for us for today. We've, we've kind of gone over the stuff that's relevant. Um, there's going to be a lot of news that's going to come out over the next few weeks, the next few months. We're going to keep up with the betas, hopefully they're a little less buggy than this one, um, and we'll swing back and, and report once we have some more insight to share. But for now, I think the main takeaway is that if you are an iPad user, or you were waiting to become an iPad user, um, things have moved forward significantly with iOS 11, we are no longer in the dark, um, Apple is no longer confused or confusing with its messaging, like, it is now clear that they see the iPad as a computer replacement. It is a computer. Um, And that's important, right? Because before it was kind of like, ah, it's this thing, it's a canvas, it's a whatever. But no, it's it's a computer. It's not the same kind that we're used to, but it is intended to do serious work. Um, And I think that's an important distinction that they're beginning to make. They're finally putting their money where their mouth is, and now we just have to see what developers do to help along that cause.
2: I think it's it's really a time when the iPad's actually living up to all of the really really cool ads that Apple puts out.
0: Yeah, there's a
2: reason to put it in your your messenger bag now. There's a reason to bring it out at a meeting and
0: to just spin it. Yeah, just, to to do the, spin just a it, crazy you know? spin. <laughs>